either the day before or the morning of our meeting. So if you go online, if you go online to the Lydda's Prophecy um, blog and go to content and then scroll down, you'll see that there are two options, St. Francis and um, Seton. Well, at all, but tonight, for example, this is going to be crucial. I'm going to talk about regimes tonight and their importance for the Odyssey in a way that I, to me, it's mind-boggling what what Homer has done. But I want to I want to um, bring this up for a minute when we get there. But it's this sort of thing that will be available online. Okay. So um, now, how do I get back? Oh God, Mike. Um, oh God. Uh oh. I just clicked out. Um, okay, I just sent it to you. Let me know if you can. Let's see. Connie. Yeah. Um, I found this online before class, so probably the easiest thing would be if we just always look for it. Yeah. Read it all. Um, um, Connie, you're, let's see, Connie, what happened? We lost Connie. Um, there's a new guest that I'm looking at. Can you identify yourself? Hi. Maria? Hi, my yes, my name is Maria Cecilia. Hi, Hi Maria. Okay. Welcome. Hi. Welcome. Welcome to you. It's good to see you. Thank you. Thank you. Um, right now we're, we're dealing with technical confusions because I'm, I have no experience in this stuff, but I want to get started because um, we're already losing time, but so I want to be clear about this. What I'm going to try to do from this point on is put an outline of the things that we're going to cover in class online and other notes like the notes that I just showed you on regimes. So I'll try to get them in either the day before, the night before, or the morning of the class. So. If you go online to literature's prophecy, one word, literaturesprophecy.com, it'll take you to the blog. By the way, some of you, I think, might find that really interesting. We're, we're doing Dostoevsky um, at St. Francis right now. We're dealing with evil and love. It's an extraordinary, extraordinary book. What Dostoevsky is showing us about ourselves in the modern world. It's just an extraordinary story. You might find... It, you might find it interesting. If you go online, you're welcome to click on it. Just go Literature's Prophecy, go to the content, hit content, and then scroll down to whatever work you want to listen to, and you can go online and listen. If you go to the bottom of that page, you'll find the, the two parishes, Francis and Seton. Click on Seton, and the materials that I'm making available on the Odyssey right now are there. So you're welcome to go to them, okay? And I'll organize it better so there will be a file for each work. I'll, I'll, do one, I'll do one tonight for the Odyssey, and I'll make a new one for the Aeneid, which will be coming up shortly, okay? So whatever class materials that are printed, um, you can find online, okay? Um, and I'll straighten out the invitation stuff tonight. Um, but welcome once again. Um, 
Maria Cecilia, it's nice to see a fresh face. Um, it, I, you haven't been here before. Most of the people on the screen right now have been around for a while, and we, we just picked up again after um, a long hiatus, a long absence, and um, it's, a, it's a pleasure to see everybody. Connie, are we, we going to lose Mary? Yeah, she, she, she wasn't going to come. She didn't think she could make it tonight. Oh, I'm sorry. Urge her from me when you I, see her, would you? Give, yeah. give her a push from me. I will. Tell her I'm always grateful for her corrections. Um, <laughs> okay, um, let's, let's, Doc, the, re the recorders are okay? Yeah. Um, and one last thing, if all of you could make a point of coming 15 minutes early at 6.15, it would be really helpful um, to get past this technical stuff because it's, it's right now it's just such a nuisance. So, okay, let's, um, Maria, or for, the, for the, anybody who's new, we ordinarily start with a prayer, usually ask for prayer requests, but while we're going through this confusion, I'm going to ask everybody to wait on them. And... But I've also asked that if anybody has a special prayer request, uh, contact us by email and let us know because we will include you in our prayers. That's a serious request. Um, I'd like to ask a favor of all of you here. Would you all send an email to Suzanne so she has your email so we can be sure we have the correct email? Because I'm trying to narrow down this list from Seton because it was just too large at the beginning and we want to get it down. To those people who are who are staying with the with the class. Okay, um, let's say let's say a prayer. In the name of the Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Thank you again, Lord, for um, the gift of our life from you, um, the gift of yourself in the Mass, for all the ways you are present to us. Um, we've come together <laughs> um, out of our love of you. Um, the whole purpose of the class is to open our eyes and our ears and our minds and hearts, maybe most particularly our hearts, so that we can know you, find you in the world, and carry the love that you ask of us more completely in everything we do in the world. All the poets we're reading take us to the world, outside of church, not in church, not in church, um, we're outside trying to find you and learn to see you there and um, so grow in our love of you and hopefully take that to everything we do with each other, um, particularly in our relationships. I ask a special grace on the work we're doing together. Um, let your blessing be upon what we're doing. Help us all to be open um, to the amazing truths you show us. Um, Help us, once we see them, um, to take root in our lives um, so that we can carry them to the world. These traditions, this wisdom is lost in so many ways to our world. We're trying to recover it, um, strengthen us in our efforts to do that. We offer these prayers in your name, Christ our Lord. Amen. Amen. Okay. Um, Maria, um, one of the practices um, 
for the course is um, to begin the class with a reading from a lyric poem because one of the things I wanted everybody to see is that almost all of the works, all, all works of art, all works of art start from a musical center, a musical center, a harmony, a whole. Artists have these intuitions. It can be a musician, it can be a painter. Um, but every, every work of art assumes that whole. T.S. Eliot calls it a still point, a center. And it's musical. It gives an order and a harmony. Without it, works of art would fall, apiece, fall apart, right? I mean, they'd go off the page. What is it in a work of art that um, happened to them? Kind of might. Um, what happens in a work of art to unify all of its parts? It's not by accident they're unified, right? They're too harmonious. So every work of art assumes a musical center, an order, actually something like a perfection. And um, um, because we've lost that notion, I want to help recover it. So one of the things we've done in this class is begin every class with um, a lyric poem because the lyric poem is, is explicitly musical. You can hear the music. It's to rhythm and rhyming and so I'm trying to hold on to that musical center and encourage everybody to keep that in mind while we look at longer works because when you look at longer works it's harder to hear the music. One of the important things that we won't experience in this class because we're reading works in translation if we were to read the, the Iliad and the Odyssey in Greek you'd hear that they're put to poetry. It's a hexameter line. It's got a certain number of beats per line. So the musical element is um, more, you can hear it. In a translation, you can't. So we start every class with a, a lyric poem just to recover this sense of music to the poet's experience that he's trying to offer us, okay? So the poem, the poem we're reading today, tonight, is from a Catholic poet. Um, Gerard Manley Hopkins. Um, those of you who've been here for a while have already heard some of his poems. This poem is called "Carrion Comfort." Carrion Comfort. It's a poem about Hopkins' struggle with despair discouragement. Um, and in the poem you'll see him tackling despair. He says, I'm not going to give in to this, this despair. The image that's conveyed in that title, Carrion Comfort, um, is the image of a vulture feeding on carrion, because you know vultures feed on dead bodies, right? You see a vulture in the road eating, feasting on a dead body. So the image is precise. He knows that the danger for us as humans is to um, get negative and then um, indulge in it, to feed on it. And his response is, he will not do that. He will not do that. So the poem is called Carrying Comfort. It, it's about the tendency to, um, to... It's about the tendency to indulge our emotions when things go bad. 
um, feel sorry for ourselves, and eat away at ourselves, basically. Um, remember, Hopkins was a, 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 an Englishman living in the 19th century, born Anglican. He was raised Anglican. Midway in his life, he converted to Catholic Church and became a Jesuit priest. He's one of the most important poets in the, in the lyric tradition. The things he did in poetry with English are amazing. Um, so, um, the, the poem's Caring Comfort. You can go online and get a copy of it yourself if you want to print it off. But tonight, just listen. The, the important images are the images of a vulture feeding on carrion, on something yeah. dead, and also of somebody wrestling. It presents himself wrestling and, and wondering if he's wrestling with God or if God is wrestling with him. And two of the images that you might keep in mind, background images, are the Job story, God letting Satan test um, Job, remember? Job had to struggle with all these sorrows. And the other one is the uh, Jacob story. Remember when Jacob wrestled with the angel through the evening? Um, Hopkins would have had both of those on his mind. So um, Hopkins carrying comfort, okay? Say, Mike, what? Dave and Kay are making your echo, so if you could just tell them to mute. Dave and Kay, can you mute your sound? By the way, I'm going to ask all of you guys to stay muted. If you'll just hit your mute button through the whole class, it, it will help improve the sound at this end, and I think it's supposed to make the pictures better. The quality will improve. And if any time you want to ask a question, unmute it. And you should know this by now. Feel free anytime. If you've got a question, if if I said something confusing, confusing, which will happen probably more than a little, just unmute it and break in. Okay, I'm glad. I'm always glad for you guys to come in. I'm saying that genuinely. Um, Maria, don't have any hesitation to come in. Okay, anybody with questions. But generally speaking, keep it muted because it'll. I think it helps improve the sound. Okay, caring comfort. Not, I'll not carry in comfort, despair, not feast on thee, not untwist slack they may be, these last strands of man in me, or most weary cry, I can no more, I can. He won't say, I can't anymore, I can't, I've reached my limit. Um, in me, or most weary cry, I can no more, I can. Can something, hope, wish, day come, not choose not to be? That's a play on Hamlet's lines, to be or not to be. He's saying he can choose um, not um, to not be. But ah, but oh, thou terrible, why wouldst thou root on me? Thy ring, earth, right foot, rock, lay a lion limb. Christ is the lion. Lay a lion limb against me, scan with darksome, devouring eyes my bruised bones and fan, O oh, in turns of tempest. Me heap there, me frantic to avoid thee and flee. Remember, he's not only looking at Christ as a human being, like the rest of us, so he would be familiar to us, the way he would is, you know, I'm looking at Connie, she's looking at me, we're looking at each other. You'd see Christ as a man. But when he returned and he took up his place in the Trinity, 
Um, he's with God. There's something infinite about his nature. So the image of devouring eyes, I don't think is overstated. Remember, he's holy. He's infinite. He's God. He took a body back with him. But he's back in the Trinity. Infinite God with God, with the nature of a man. That paradox, it's one of the great mysteries of our faith. So he's imagining Christ looking at him now, wrestling with him, because Hopkins loves Christ, but he also is aware that as hard as he tries, he's not a god, so he will fail in his love. He has to struggle, he has to wrestle with Christ. Yeah? Why, that my chaff might fly, my grain lie, sheer and clear? Nay, in all that toil, that coil, since seems I kiss the rod, remember thy rod and thy staff, they comfort me. Hand rather my heart low, lapsed strength, stole joy, would laugh, cheer. Cheer whom though? The hero whose heaven handling flung me, foot trod me, or me that fought him? Who's fighting whom here? Who's wrestling with whom? I think it's important to see Christ wrestling with all of his disciples and the religious leaders. But I think it's also important to see him on the cross. <laughs> because it seems to me it's impossible to think of him on the cross bearing all of our sins without taking the agony of that wrestling on, on onto the cross with him there. So, Cheer whom, though, the hero whose hem and handling flung me, foot trod me, or me that fought him? Oh, which one? Is it each one? That night, that year of now done darkness, I, wretch, lay wrestling with my God. My God. Next week, I'm gonna. This is from a, a series of poems called um, "Poems in His Dark Period." Next week, I'm going to read another one that's from this dark period um, too. It's they're, they're beautiful poems, but so that's Hopkins. Okay. Um, okay, tonight um, here. Let me do this for no. I've already well. Let me try it. Um, here's the things that I want to cover tonight. Can you all hear me? Just shake your head. Um, Dave, can you? Yeah, good, thanks. Because I can see Dave but, and Kay, but that's all. So um, here are the things we're going to cover. Um, the themes that we have spoken about now for a couple of weeks that in Homer we're, we're taken back and given a mythic view of reality and one of the things that myths give us remember because the poet calls on the goddess Mimosine he calls on her help so that she can tell a story about the way in which the gods intervene in the lives of men so in the epic um, the, the veil separating the divine and human falls away and we see the gods helping us if a poet today could do that he'd be showing the Holy Spirit doing something with us in whatever he would be doing Homer was doing that with the gods before Christ came okay so we're going back to a mythic world so that we can see the earthly order um, related to the divine the two of them interrelated, okay? Um, you know from the opening invocation 
that the poem is about this man of many ways. He's called a man of many ways. And he's going to go on in these journeys. So the opening line says, tell us of the man of many ways, many, many ways, and the many cities he saw. This is going to be major for tonight. It's going to be absolutely major for tonight. One of the things that Odysseus learned that he had to learn before he could back, get back to his marriage and bring to his home is how different people are and what's wrong, what's wrong with regimes. So tonight I'm going to spend a good amount of time looking at the, the voyages, the, the adventures he has on his, on his voyages. The theme of a homecoming, Nostos, the whole action of the poem is, is concerned with Odysseus getting home, to return home. He's been away for 20 years. He wants to be reunited with his wife. So nostos, which means home, from which we get nostalgia. It's a longing for those things we've lost. The word economia in Greek, from which we get economy. We think of economy in, in largely in terms of finances. If I only get my bills in order, I'll live a happy life. The Greeks would have laughed at that. They knew that you could have all the money in the world. Menelaus and Helen are wealthy. They're not happy. Economia in the Greek came from oiko, home, and nomos, law. So economia in the Greek world meant the rule of the household, bringing an order to the world. And it's clear, one of the most important things I want to stress tonight, is it's really clear from Homer, is there's a, there's a potential order in the human soul. It will only come into order with itself when it learns to order itself with God's larger order. There's an order to the universe, this universe made by the gods. We have to learn to conform ourselves, to become one with it. So the homecoming, returning home, in a sense, means not just returning to your own home, but finding out who you are in the larger scheme of things, going there, okay? Last week, we talked a little bit about marriage, and I suggested that there are a number of things in the way of marriages today. The scientific world um, looks at human beings as if they're things produced by these forces beyond our control, evolutionary forces. The fundamentalist Protestant world looks at nature as depraved. Human beings are depraved. Those two worldviews have so darkened our modern world. They've affected how we look at each other. They, they have, a, to me, a violent effect on marriages, I think. Um, the Christian belief is that our God is Trinitarian, so they share a love between each other. They're loved and are loved. And if we're made in his image, we were meant to love and be loved, that we're, we're supposed to bring that love to our marriages. What Homer shows us is that that, it all, that involves a lot of suffering. Uh, we have to learn to deal with things in the world to get better. The theme of the, of the son searching for his father. You know that Telemachus set off to see if he could learn something about his father. Um, one of the things that we see immediately at home in uh, Ithaca is that almost nobody, Mike, can you come on in? Almost nobody um, pays attention to the gods. Telemachus does, Odysseus does. I don't know, this thing came in. I don't know if I'm still on. Yeah, you're fine. You're fine. 
It is? Yeah, you're still okay. broadcasting. Okay. Um, and finally, to this new kind of hero. Um, this is a very different hero from Achilles. Both of them have anger at the center of who they are. Both of them. Odysseus is called a man of many ways, long-suffering Odysseus. Um, but his word, his name, his name itself, from Odysseus, or, or um, from the verb, I think, Odysseo, I can't remember the Greek word. It's been a while. But it, it means distasteful, somebody who brings pain to other or who arouses annoyance in other. He brings an anger to things. He has to fight things. Things resist him. So throughout the, throughout the, uh, Mike, sorry. Um, oh, here, sorry. Uh-oh. Can you all hear me? Is everybody, okay. I think I'm okay. I still, I think I'm okay. Um, he brings a pain to wherever he goes. What we'll learn from watching him is that he's a principle of moderation. That's going to become clear as we go along. What Homer will make clear are the extremes on either side of him, either passivity or aggression. Odysseus is learning how to moderate himself, to become virtuous, because virtue means not being at those extremes. And we'll see that that's something he exemplifies in everything he does. Um, we're okay. Mike keeps checking in on me to see if I'm doing okay. Um, so I want to um, I want to talk about two things tonight. One is this sense of um, congruence, accord between the human soul and God's order. Okay, so hold on to that. This sense of congruence or, um, or oneness between man and God's order. Um, if I can go back to the sharing for a minute, take a look. Uh-oh, uh-oh. Yeah, here, okay. Um, if you look on the left, you'll see the image of the soul that we got from Plato, that Plato got from Homer. Okay, according to Plato in the Republic, the human soul has three faculties. One called reason, it's the power of rationality that man has. And um, a second kind called appetites. But the appetites themselves divide down into two kinds. There's a spiritedness, what the Greeks called thumos, and the appetites. Spiritedness or Thumos are the desires that are directed towards transcendent realities, beauty, truth, goodness, oneness, unity. It's the soul's longing for something transcendent, something beyond this world. The physical appetites are those desires turned towards physical things like food or eating or drinking, sex, I mean all the natural goods that, um, that the soul longs for. According to Plato, reason controls the appetites, the belly in Homer, through that middle element, through anger. Okay? Um, if the human soul gives in to the physical appetites, 
The soul becomes a tyrant to itself and to those around him. So if a man, say, drinks too much or, or eats too much, very often it's going to affect what he does with other people. Um, he's, he's, he's going to let his concern for drinking or gambling or whatever the sin is um, get in the way of, of what he should be doing with other people. So according to Plato, the soul comes to itself. It fully realizes itself when it learns to control its appetites through that middle element. You can call the heart, the heart's longing. Okay? If you go to the diagram to the right, you'll see that I put the soul of man in God's order. That um, there's an order to the universe, and we can't really properly order our soul until we learn to see God's presence in the universe. Odysseus struggles to do that, so does his son. Plato gave us the image of a cave. Do you all see it to the right? We've gone through this before. According to Plato, every one of us is in a cave. Behind us is a fire. And the light from that fire casts shadows or appearances or images on the wall. Um, we take those images for reality when they're only images. They're surface images. They're not what's real. And if you look at the man in the cave, he's holding a book because it's the book that makes him think that the images are reality when they're not. And the struggle of every man, according to Plato, and Socrates is the image of that, is the, the, the goal of every man is to come out of the cave into the sunlight. And he can't do that without questioning himself, the nature of things, to ask why things are the way they are. When he begins to ask questions, when he begins to wonder, the chains that are around his neck will release, and he can begin his ascent out of the cave. So for, for Plato... Man could not come to the knowledge he's capable of having until he begins to question himself in the world, when, until he begins to wonder. The nature of wonder is to wonder why things are so, to ask those questions. Now the interesting thing, if you put this in terms of Christianity, is Plato thought we could come out of the cave if we began to wonder. We learn from Christ that he came into the cave to bring us something we couldn't. Now that's later, I don't want to get, but just to make you aware of that now, okay? The great concern in the ancient world was justice or law to properly order your soul so that you could give another his due. That's what justice is. And we learn from the Odyssey that you can't do that without the help of the gods. That's why I put that second image in. That, that man can't become who he is because there's something transcendent in his soul until he pays attention to the gods. Um, Plato described that, that effort in terms of that allegory coming out of the cave. Okay, and let me, oh, God, Mike, um, uh, Michelle, God, um, did everybody hear that? Is that okay? Because this is all new for me. I'm trying to use the share page instead of a board. Did you guys all get that? Connie, you got that? Yes. That, I hope that's helpful. Yes. I hope that's helpful. Are you guys, I mean, I hope that's as helpful as I hope it is. Is it? Is it? I mean, seeing those things, does that help? I hope. Yes. Yeah. With that melody. Sorry? 
It does for Melody. Good, good. Okay. Um, here, I wanted to read this. This, this is from our reading this last weekend. Just to try to put this in perspective. Now remember, we're not in Christianity yet. This predates Christianity. So the great concern of the ancient world in, Jew in the Jewish world and in the Greek world, in the classic world, was justice. The great call for everybody was to be just. Plato's saying nobody can be just until they learn to order their own souls. So long as there's a disorder in them souls, they won't be able to be just to another person. Okay? But the great, the great push of the ancient world, the virtue that was the greatest virtue of the ancient world was justice. That's true for Homer, it'll be true for Virgil, it'll be true for the Old Testament. Okay? Here's the reading from the Old Testament reading this last weekend. I just to put this in perspective. Remember, we're not in Christianity yet. We're not there. Although Christ, don't forget this, because I think the Christian world has so messed this up today. Christ came, he made this very clear. He said, I didn't come to break the law. I came to fulfill it. Christ did, did nothing to undermine his father. The great call of the Old Testament is justice. The whole test, old, everything in the Old Testament, if you go to church through the week, you'll hear justice in the Old Testament reading again and again and again and again and again. Okay? Christ himself said, I, I came to fulfill the law. What he does is bring a transcendent love to fulfilling the law that humans can't bring to it themselves. Okay? We all together? Everybody hearing? This was the reading from the Old Testament this last weekend. I thought it was appropriate given we were doing... Um, we're doing the Odyssey. This is from the Book of Wisdom. This is from the Book of Wisdom. It's um, chapter 12, verses 13 and on. Um, this is from the Book of Wisdom. There is no God beside you who have the care of all that you need show you have not unjustly condemned. For your might is the source of justice. Your mastery over all things make you lenient to all. For you show your might when the perfection of your power is disbelieved. And in those who know you, you rebuke temerity. But though you are master of might, you judge with clemency. And with much lenience, you govern us. For power, whenever you will, attends you. And you taught your people by these deeds. That those who are just must be kind. And you gave your children good ground for hope that you would permit repentance for their sins. The word of the Lord. That's from the Old Testament. So, weekly, you know, if you're paying attention to the readings, it's impossible to hear the Old Testament, the Old Testament without hearing God's call to justice. And um, he's included in that call is kindness to others, um, repenting over and over and over again. Yahweh says, I don't want sacrifices. I want a contrite heart. I want a contrite heart. So it's already leading to Christ in the New Testament, but we're, not, but we're not there. In Homer, we're in a world conceived largely in terms of justice. Um, the war was fought over a matter of an injustice, a wrong done, to correct that wrong. And we know, we've read the Iliad now, that war would have gone on indefinitely if Achilles had not done what he did. 
Odysseus is on his way home, and um, because of the foolishness of his men they're th and his own foolishness, they're thrown off. And now he's got to learn, and it's really clear um, he will not get home and become the husband or father he could be until he learns all these things. And the question we were left with last week is, what does he learn? So to try to put this in perspective now, remember, um, what we're learning from Odysseus is the task of learning to order his own soul. Okay? And the whole direction of it will be in the direction of norms, that there are norms in nature. And to try to realize them, to make them real, is a struggle. Everywhere he goes, he's going to see people giving into extremes. They're going to miss the norms. They're going to fail at either end. Okay? Um, that's his great struggle. And he can't do that without the help of the gods. Because there's something transcendent in the human soul. So his struggle to get home is a struggle to learn to become who he is, to fulfill his nature. He can't do that without the help of the gods. Okay? Now remember, um, last week I defined the four natural virtues because we've lost a sense of them too. The four natural virtues, and we see these in Odysseus everywhere. Temperance, fortitude, prudence, and justice. And justice would be the highest <coughs> because it would mean bringing those other virtues into play in what you do with other people. How can you be just to another person, give another person his due, if your own soul isn't justly ordered? <coughs> yeah? Okay? Now I'm going to, I want to go back to a question. I think um, a couple of people raised, I know Karen, you were, um, you had a major question last night and um, I hope by the time we get through the work that your question will be answered. It, I mean, I, I don't think it's possible to answer it fully until we get through it, but I just want to take one virtue right now and um, take a minute with it. The virtue of prudence means knowing what to do, under what circumstances, when and how. That's what prudent means. And I think it's, I hope this goes partly to answer your question, Karen, even if it doesn't answer it fully. That means, for Odysseus, he knows when he has to efface himself, when he has to put himself away. In the middle of the Cyclops cave, we're going to get there in a minute, he has to efface himself, completely do away. He says, my name is nobody. He absolutely eliminates his identity. He's nobody. When he gets home, he puts on a mask. Remember, he, he, he pretends to be a beggar. He effaces himself again. He, he's not Achilles. He doesn't rush into that, into that setting with a hundred suitors and take them all on. Achilles would. That's his nature. Odysseus feels things out. He tests things out. But when the time is appropriate, he comes out as a man. Because he knows if he doesn't, his wife's going to get killed, his son's going to get killed, he, he, will be, he will get killed. We know the suitors have already plotted to kill Telemachus. So prudence means knowing what to do under work circumstances. There are times when a person has to put himself away. There are going to be times when that person has to step forward. And stepping forward with the help of the gods may involve violence. Justice at the end of the book will mean 
killing the suitors and the maidservants. And I, I want to. I don't want to bring. I don't want to talk about that night but, or right now. But um, when we get to the end, we will. Some people have trouble with that. We'll have to talk about Homer's view of justice when we get there. But anyway, that's just one virtue. You could take all the other temperance, prudence, wisdom, justice, and apply them to Odysseus, and watching him grow into those virtues as he moves through his journey. Okay. Um, so that's the first. The second is, I'm going to put this chair page up again, and I want you to take a look at it just for a second because it's going to take us to the ver the, the uh, regimes, the adventures um, that we began last week, and I, I want to look at a couple of them very closely tonight because they're really important. So let me show you that page again. Um, Sorry, I can't see very well. Can um, can you all see this? Just shake your head if you can. Can you see it? You, you okay? Can you see it? Good, good. At the top, you'll see the three regimes that I'm going to say um, define the real world as we know it, and we can say real poetry. We know from the Telemachi that we've, um, we've experienced three regimes, Ithaca, Pylos, and Sparta. Remember, Telemachus had to go to Pylos and Sparta to, are you okay? See? Just so they can see it better. Yeah. I want you all to be ready to sign a note of thanksgiving to Mike because we're only we're only able to do this because this poor young man has had to spend half of his life in front of this computer trying to straighten largely me partly Suzanne out if you knew anything about us you knew that the job of straightening Suzanne out is much easier than it is straightening me out um, the the three regimes give us a picture of reality as it is at, to our to our eyes um, I'm, I'm claiming that what Homer's doing is showing us um, the whole range of poetry and reality. When Telemachus goes to Pylos, he's experiencing what I'm going to call the pathos, the poetry, a, a, a kind of art. The pathos of a flawed heroism. It's the heroism in the Iliad that existed up until the turning point when Achilles um, acknowledged his faults and accepted his death. Because from that point on, reality changes. Up until that point, Homer's showing us a kind of flawed, heroic ideal. Um, I'm going to call it the, the, the poetry of the male ego. Man's desire um, to dominate, to have his will. So when we get to Pylos, um, what Telemachus experiences is Nestor. We don't experience his wife. Remember, we've gone over this. The entire episode at, at Pylos involves Nestor telling stories of all his heroic deeds. There's no wife. I mean, it's just a man. It's like going into a home and, and visiting an, a, a married couple, and the, and the man loves hunting, and all he can do is talk about his hunting exploits. Or, or today, let it be computer. 
you know, or whatever, what physics, let it be whatever it is. Um, teaching, literature, scares me on that one. Um, so I, I'm going to call that the pathos, the poetry of a flawed heroism. When he goes to Sparta, you remember that he meets with Menelaus and Helen, and Helen comes down and offers the, um, um, him and um, Nestor's son drugs. I'm going to call that the pathos of, of um, self-pity or the, or, the, or the soap operas of women whose answer to the pains in their life is to want to drink too much or take drugs. It's the pathos of self-pity. So you've got um, the male ego on one and female vanity on the other and the, the two extremes to which they're given. Okay. And in both of them, both of them are trapped in their past. They will not let go of their past. So they carry their wounds with them every day. They can't let go of the wounds of the past. We know that in our own lives. All of us know that. When we've been wounded or hurt in life or, or those we've loved, something's happened. The temptation is to carry those wounds. Uh, it's in this way that I, uh, the claim I made last week, it's in this way that this work looks forward to Christ. Because what Christ is saying is there is something in the present to which we can all turn um, to help put those wounds and wounded memories from the past into a better perspective. So when Telemachus sets off to find his father, in one sense, he's attempting to, to come into the present. Remember, he's a young boy, 19 years old. He's like all young men of that age. He's given to despair. He's given to be negative. He doesn't even know that Athena's with him all the time. We've talked about that. That's the humor of it. But he wants to, he wants to do something about that past. He wants to find his father. He doesn't want to let the disorder that exists at home continue. He wants to change that. So in Ithaca, we've got a poetry that I'm going to call realism, realistic poetry. It's a poetry that's getting out of a, out of a false heroism on one side and a self-pity on the other. And at the same time, we know that the gods are helping Odysseus get free so he can return home and bring order to his home. The order won't happen until father and son come together after all these struggles. Okay, so those are the what I'm going to call um, the realistic regimes, the anti-romantic. Because Homer is criticizing the romantic tendency in man to idealize the two extremes um, in, in Pylos and Sparta. Um, when Odysseus, remember he's on the shore of home when his companions open the bag of wind and it sends him out to sea, it's then that he has to go back out to sea and um, um, the large number of adventures take place there. Before we go there, um, remember we started looking at them last week. We looked at um, his first adventure in which he was still a soldier. He was killing people, and the, the lotus eaters. Um, I want to. I want to. I want to pick up there. But before we do, I, I want to set this. I'm in front of you because this is absolutely, absolutely crucial for what we're doing. The two of the most important regimes that Odysseus is going to experience on on his wanderings are the Cyclops. Um, it's the scene in which he learns to put himself away, where he says, my name is nobody. I think that's a turning point for the whole action. 
And the Phaeacians, because it's to the Phaeacians that he goes to tell the stories. Okay, remember, he goes home and he has all of these adventures and um, he ends up in Calypso's Island and Hermes comes to set him free and he's set free on his raft but Poseidon comes and wrecks it and it casts him ashore on the Phaeacian Island, the island of the Phaeacians. And we learn there that this is absolutely crucial, absolutely crucial for everything we're doing in this course. We learned there that the Phaeacians and the Cyclops were next to each other. I'm going to say some things that are going to be shocking to everybody in a second. The Cyclops and the Phaeacians were next to each other. They were at the ends of the earth. The Cyclops um, kept attacking the Phaeacians, we learned that, and they moved. So at one extreme we have the Cyclops who are barbaric, vicious, mean, they kill people. You know that when Odysseus comes into the cave, Cyclops is going to eat his men. They have no laws, they have no institutions, they're violent people. The Phaeacians, in contrast, are at the opposite extreme. They're, they're an image of an ideal world. No wars come to them. Um, Hephaestus has built all their palaces. So the gods have created this wonderful world full of art and architecture, dancing, games, um, th this is going to be crucial. They make ships that go over the sea without thought. I'm going to come back to that because that's an amazing... With thought. They go like thought, as if all they had to do is think and the ship would move. Because it's amazing prophetic insight into our own world today. I'll, I'll get to that in a minute. But the Falcons have this courteous, well-mannered, yeah, well very artistic regime and the Cyclops barbaric, they were next to each other at the end of the world. And I want to make this point because it's absolutely crucial. If you listen to most evolutionists who think about biology and history, the assumption of, of most scientists today is that prehistorical man was barbaric. We lived in a state of barbarism and that we've come out of it. I'm going to recommend a book you all should read. It, it's by the guy who brought me into the Catholic Church. Ironic, it, its name's G.K. Chesterton. I'm, I'm assuming some of you have heard his name. He wrote a book entitled um, Everlasting Man. It's the book that led C.S. Lewis to his conversion, Everlasting Man. In that book, Chesterton is taking apart that scientific theory. It, it's, it's the most reasoned response that I've ever heard in my life. Most scientists have assumptions that cannot be proved, not close to being proved. And they look at civilization as some, somehow evolving out of some prehistoric barbaric state. Here's what we learn from Homer. This is in 800 BC. He's looking back to the Trojan War. So we can say in some way his vision goes back, predates the Trojan War. 1200, 1400. We know it from Egypt. We know it from Babylon. We know it from China. We know it here from Homer. What Homer is saying is the barbaric regime didn't grow up for, or didn't come first and the civilized regime came after, they grew up side by side. Now the reason I want to say that is because as we move through the course, you know we're about to get there, I'm going to ask with every adventure where you find that archetype, whatever that adventure shows us, whatever that archetype is, where do we find it in America today? Where are the lotus eaters? Where's the Lestrigony people? Where are the Cyclops? 
If these two regimes, the Scaria, the Falcon regime, and the Cyclops regime, grew up side by side, are there cities that you can point to in America that show those, exemplified those two extremes? Re regimes in which there is beauty and order and architecture, and cities which are given to violence. <laughs> I'm almost afraid to name names here. If you went to Seattle, if you went to Portland, if you went to some other cities, particularly in the north, why? Why are some of those cities so given to violence? What's going on? And, and at, at, at the same time that there are cities in America that seem to be peace-loving, just, um, financially prosperous. So um, what I'd like to do here is just pull all this together now. Remember the opening lines, many of the cities he saw, many of the minds he experienced. What Homer's showing us is that who a person becomes can't be separated from the regime in which he grows up in. That the two are correlated, closely related. That regimes can help people become better, they can help them become worse. So our, our upbringing, what we're helped to see, experience, feel, can help us become better human beings, become virtuous, or they can actually make it harder and make it easier for us to become violent or barbaric. But clearly, if you read through the Odyssey, it seems to me one of the great truths that Homer is passing on to us is that there's this relationship between the human person and his outer world. Most immediately in his regime, Ithaca, Pylos, Sparta, Scaria, which whenever one of it is, and God's larger order, the order of God's creation, the justness of it, the goodness. Can a man step into God's order in his community and become a better man? Or are there things going on in communities which will make it easier for him to be barbaric, okay? Now remember when the, when the, when the um, Odyssey opens, we're in, in Ithaca with Telemachus and Penelope and they're surrounded by suitors who are tearing their house apart. So we're introduced to a home in chaos. When we finish the book, Odysseus is going to bring all of his experiences from his wanderings to his home and bring an order to it that we will not find in Pylos or Sparta. So what is it that he's bringing home when he comes home? Okay, that's the great question um, that we have to ask ourselves going into the, what do I do, unshare this mic? Mm -hmm. This. Now let me stop for, let me stop for a moment. Can you all hear me okay? Can you hear me? Let me stop for any questions. Let me take a minute because that's a lot. Or maybe not. Maybe maybe you guys knew all that already. Any questions? Maria, put these people to shame, these veterans to shame here. Ask a question. You don't have any questions? I the 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 virtue at the beginning of the Odyssey is we can't come out of the cave until we ask questions. Come on, you guys. I can't believe there are no questions here. There's a lot uh, going yeah. on. Yeah. There's something we haven't really touched on the Phaeacians a lot. 
but they that whole culture fascinated me because it was so different from everything else absolutely and yeah. especially because when after Odysseus meets the uh, can you see okay the princess I can't remember her name I'm, I'm looking at Nasika Nasika yeah even Nasika yeah after he meets Nasika she warns him she says you'll, you'll be welcomed by my father but yep. she warns him yep that they should not go into the town together and then when he when before he goes Athena actually veils him to keep him hidden from everyone else what's going on there we're going to go there can you wait a minute that's where we're going sure, sure. <laughs> no but it's it, i mean you're absolutely right you're just your your way of describing was right on it seems to me and w one of the interesting things is it, you're almost going to have a delayed effect because he won't tell his stories until he gets there. So we're not going to see all the barbaric things and feel the contract. But we'll come back to Scary of the Falcons when the stories are over. So all of his adventures um, take place, or the description of them takes place in Fayakia. So they're all going to be set against that world. And we have, that's where I'm going. I mean, so if there are no other questions, I'll go there. But any, does anybody else have any questions about what we just did with regimes? Is everybody clear on how important they are? The city, the community you live in, how important it is for, for helping somebody to become good. By the way, ah. wait, let me make, sorry, let me, you can't read a Shakespeare play. You cannot read a Shakespeare play without seeing how much Shakespeare learned from Homer because every one of his plays deals with a different regime. We saw this in our work together, by the way, if you go back to what we did with Shakespeare. You, he, he knew that in his bones. In the modern world, we've lost it because we either, we're either products of evolutionary forces, over which we have no control, or Freud, which we, means we go into the private psyche. But the sense of a connection between the human being and a world, gone. Homer's bringing them together. Shakespeare did too. If you read Jane Austen, you see the same thing because she learned from Shakespeare. If you read a, a book like Mansfield Park, which I'm thinking about doing in, together here to do Jane Austen's Mansfield Park, she calls, the, she, she calls the book Mansfield Park. She's identifying a place. If you read that novel of hers, you'd see there are four or five places that she explores and makes clear each one creates a different kind of person. Um, so um, we're doing Dostoevsky at um, St. Francis. You can't read Dostoevsky without feeling sort of shocked by it that all the people living in Russia at that time are in the midst of a revolution and it's affecting everybody. You cannot separate a human being from his world. Um, we we cause things to happen in that world by things we do. That world affects us very often by what's going on outside of us. We all know that. So, sorry, somebody was going to ask a question. So this is Melody. Um, so you can't separate someone from their regime that they live in if they grow up in a violent community or a bigoted community. Um, my question would be, can't we change that person? Can't we help that person not be that 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 way? But it sounds like 
but she didn't think that way, and that's why he had to kill everybody. <laughs> wait, wait on that. Let's wait to the ending. But before you get there, it seems to me every everything that's going on in the book before the ending. Wait on that, Melody. Wait. Okay. But it seems to me everything on the everything up until the ending is actually moving in that direction. Telemachus wants to deal with the disorders. You know, he he wants to answer them. So the the immediate answer to your question is yes, because the book opens on a home in absolute chaos um, and they're trying to do something about it um, the relationship he's going to have with his son is going to be a good relationship you know they've not known each other for 20 years something's both Odysseus and Penelope are going to bring something to their marriage that they didn't have 20 years earlier so what Homer's showing us is um, that people can get better that people can bring a better order to their homes, but he's also showing there's a cost to it. That okay. it involves people in real struggles. They only have to kill a few people. Well, let's wait on the ending because <laughs> <laughs> I want to wait. I'll be quiet. You, I'll be quiet. Why do you guys have murder on your mind so much right now? <laughs> Actually, wait on it because I, I want to wait because that, that's going to be a huge question when we get to the end. But but the action of the whole move or the the book at this point is Odysseus is learning something. There are things that we can learn as readers that can help us affect the kind of change that you're talking about, I think. Okay. Um, okay. Okay. To, let's go to the um, let's go to the adventures. Mike, you don't have to stay. Um, I want to concentrate on um, two of the adventures tonight, um, and then next week I'm going to take up the rest, okay? I want to concentrate on the Cyclops and the Phaeacians um, because they're the two basic arch archetypes. And remember the claim that I'm making, because this is so contrary to most modern ways of thinking. What Homer is saying is that um, these two regimes grew up side by side. So one didn't evolve. They were there. So from the very beginning, this is interesting. I mean, think about this in connection with the biblical presentation of the fall. Honestly, I don't want to go there, but think about this. Adam and Eve were completely good. Absolutely good. Absolutely good. They loved God. There was nothing lacking in the characters. They made a choice that that wounded them. That's our Catholic belief. And sin entered into their life. So when they leave paradise, when they leave blessedness, there are two things going on in their lives. Part of them is violent. Cain's going to commit a murder, remember? And part of them is good. And if you go back to the beginnings of our course, remember I said if you go back biblically, Enoch is the founder of the first city. Remember? City comes into existence. It's man's attempt to live in existence without God. So as the biblical the biblical view of things is that is that these two states, if you will, grew up simultaneously. Now how to square that with a the theory of evolution, I don't know, but I'd, I'd like you just to do it, because that's Homer's claim. That's what he's showing us here. 
So tonight I want to I want to look at um, the the um, the Cyclops and the and the Firefins very very closely. Remember, here's here's the ten regimes. If you go online later, you can get the ten. The Caconians. Remember when he left Troy. Um, yeah, look, I should get back. Um, the Caconians. When he left Troy, he was a sacker of cities. He carries the violence of ten years at war with him. The Lotus Eaters. Remember, they meet these people who give them these lotus flowers. It, I, I believe that that's Homer's way of showing the way in which drugs, I think principally drugs, marijuana, drugs, heroin, can take a hold of a culture. Because you know that once they give the drugs to uh, Odysseus's men, they don't want to go home. They're lost. They want to stay there. So he's so first, Caconians of um, Sacra City, then the seductions of drugs, something a potion that comes from plants, and once people take it. They lose that sense of purposefulness, of wanting to get home. So they're undermined. Odysseus has to force them to come along. Um, then we get the Cyclops. We're going to go to the Cyclops in just a second. Iolus, the Bag of Winds, the Lestrigone Queen. Um, is, she's described as being as large as a mountain. Um, and she puts her men on Odysseus's men, and they destroy almost all of Odysseus's company except one boat. So we've got to look at who she is, what that means. <clears throat> Circe, um, Odysseus is with Circe for one year. The Cimmerians, the land of the dead, he has to go to the land of the dead. It's clear that he won't be able to fulfill himself to come home as to be the husband and father that he should be without his experience of the dead. Then the Sirens, Skill and Cribnus, and Enthronachia, the island of Helios. When they land there, they have already been warned several times not to eat. This is interesting, really interesting. They're warned not to eat the cattle of Helios. It's eating. It's the most ordinary thing in our life. They eat the cattle and they're destroyed. But this is the only one who's temperate, who restrains himself. But the turn of the whole thing, their whole adventure, turns on eating. And I'm only underlining that right now because I, I, I want to look at this in a big way. We can't live without food, so we know it's a very ordinary thing, right? Very ordinary thing. And the center of our life as Catholics is the Eucharist. It's a meal. It's a meal. Is, the, is Homer seeing something about food that most people don't take for, or most people take for granted until Christ come. I don't want to look into that now, but next week I want to look closely at that. So we'll look at all the adventures next week. Tonight I want to just look at um, the Cyclops and the Phaeacians. Okay. So let me, if you all have your books handy, you can get your books out. I want to go through, I hope this is working. You guys hear me okay and see me okay? Okay. Sorry. This is the equivalent of the mic back at Seton. 
Okay, turn to page 28. I'm just going to go through a number of passages just to get the book back in your minds because I'm, I'm guessing you probably haven't been reading it for a couple months, I don't know, or maybe you have, I don't know, but, but you know how much I believe in not abstractions, ideas, but in concrete reality. So I want to get us back in the book. So I'm going to read from passages and try to put some things together so we can see exactly what's going on in Scaria and with the Cyclops. Um, because I want to ask, where are they today? Where, where is this this Cyclopean world, and where is this um, Falcon world? Okay. So on page, sorry, page twenty-eight, line fifty. At the very open of the book, we learned that Athena is upset with Zeus because Odysseus has been on Calypso's island for almost eight years. Now hold on to that. I think I've mentioned this before. He's with Circe for one year, Calypso for almost for eight years. So for the roughly eight years. For the nine and a half years that he's been away, he's under control of women for nine of those years. So even if he doesn't experience physical violence with them, their power is extraordinary. Okay? Odysseus has got to learn to deal with this before he gets home. And here we learn from what um, Athena says, Let any other man who does thus perish as he did, but the heart in me is torn for the sake of wise Odysseus, unhappy man, who still far from his friends is suffering griefs on the sea-washed island, the navel of all waters. A wooded island, there's a goddess has made her dwelling place. She is daughter of malignant Atlas, who has discovered all the depths of the sea. Now remember this... Jung called the sea an image of the irrational, the unconscious. Athena is not with Odysseus at sea. And she's a goddess of wisdom. So in everything that's going on at sea, we're being taken to unconscious depths, mystical depths, mysterious depths. It's not land. Our home is land. That's where we're meant to be. But occasionally we have to go to sea to get home. So at sea, we're entering into what is essentially mysterious, unknown. And Homer is making it known to us, okay? But the phrase, I, the, the image I want you to hold on to here, it's the navel of the waters. You know that the navel is the umbilical cord, right? When a woman gives birth, that umbilical cord is what ties that child to life. So hold on to that when you think about Calypso's Island. It's the navel of the waters. So there's some sense in which we can't think about her and her island without connecting it to some life source in the divine, whatever that means, okay? Go to page 88. In book five, um, Zeus sends Hermes to free Odysseus from Calypso's island. Okay, On page 89 at the bottom, remember when he comes to Calypso's island, um, he finds a goddess who's um, playing on a lyre, weaving, and in a cave. So she has a dark abode, 
She, she's isolated. She lives by herself. She's very possessive. She wants Odysseus for herself, and she offers him immortality. And remember, before we go any farther, the word calypso means conceal, a dark hole. Its, its origins, its word origins are a hole, a cave, a darkness. We, we use the word apocalypse, which means what? To come out of the darkness. Apocalypse, the book of Revelation, right? Is the, the work of the apocalypse, to, to come out of the darkness into the light. Calypso's name is darkness. She offers Odysseus immortality. She wants him for herself. And let me stop for just a second on that. Um, I can't, where do we, did everybody go? Um, um, what's I going to ask? Um, what's I going to go? Sorry. Calypso. You remember in the Iliad that the great theme of the Iliad was Kleos. Yeah? Honor. And we saw that all the men in the Iliad lived by a false sense of honor, what I was calling the male intellect a while ago. They were all living for the wrong thing. It wasn't until Odysseus admitted his fault and um, committed himself to death that he could come out. And when he did, the action turned. So Cleos was given a new meaning. What, what we saw, remember Odysseus when Agamemnon sent him his gifts, Odysseus refused him and says, such honor is a thing I need not. I think I'm already honored in Zeus's ordinance. That there's an honor in man that's inherent in his dignity because of his ties to the God. Man has this inherent dignity. He can't be treated as an object. And his honor, his honor can't depend on somebody material possessions uh, because they can be taken away. We all know that. When we leave this world, we're not taking our possessions with us. So Cleos took on a different meaning. Calypso is offering Odysseus immortality, but it's an immortality that would cost him his Cleos because he would be kept in a cave. There's something possessive in what she does with him to keep him. But let me ask this question before we go any further. See what you think. Let's say Odysseus had chosen to, to accept her gift because lots of people would say immortality for sure, I want it. Odysseus doesn't. He wants to go home. What would have happened if he had accepted her gift and stayed there? Any thoughts on that? Just take your audio off, anybody who wants, and jump in. He would not have grown as a person. He would have just been a slave forever and, and not found true happiness. Yeah. Yes. Anybody else? Anybody want to add anything to that? Sorry, I heard something. Let me offer this thought. Partly what Homer's 
making clear is that man has a nature. He has a nature. And that nature is to be filled with another human being, with his wife and his son and a home. Um, he can't fulfill that nature um, by escaping it, you know, sharing a life with an immortal goddess. Um, and the other interesting question that I always ask myself when I think about what she offers him, because it's, it's an extraordinary, seems to be extraordinary on the surface, what if he had lived forever as a human being? What would that mean? Would he, would he have realized his perfection when he, let's say he's 40 years old, I don't know how this is, let's say he's 40, 45, would he have realized his human perfection then and remain that way forever? Or would he have forever aged? Really, seriously. Calypso's immortal. She's a goddess. Odysseus is mortal. He ages. If he took on the characteristic of immortality that she offers him when he's mortal, a human being, would he have just aged I don't know. I'm just asking the question. It's interesting because what Homer's doing is, is forcing us to look at our human nature here on earth. Um, we know that he can't do what he does without the help of the gods, but here a goddess is offering him immortality. Hold on to that because we're going to come back when we look at Circe again too. Um... You know that um, eventually Hermes comes to Calypso's island and f helps free Odysseus, and um, and then he sails off. Poseidon crashes his raft, and then he swims ashore, and he's at Phaeaca. Now go. Let's go to Phaeaca. You know that when he arrives on shore, Nausicaa meets greets him. She feeds him. She bathes him. Um, Athena washes over him a, a nimbus. It makes him look larger than he is, more glorious. She looks at him after he bathes and sees something godly in him. She tells him to be careful when he goes into the city because the Phaeacians are, they're a good people, but they're also capable of impudence, of an, of an arrogance. So hold on to these things. So he goes into the city. Athena greets him and disguises herself and she takes him to Alcinous's palace. And it's there that he's greeted by Alcinous, the, the, um, the king. Turn to page 119. I want to go, go through some of this. Um, 119. Um, top of 119, about line 300. When he meets the king and tells him what happened, Elkinus says, My friend, here is one proper thought that my daughter was not aware of when she failed to bring you with her attendants here to our house. It was she to whom you first came as a suppliant. Odysseus says, Don't be, don't be angry at your daughter. She was doing what she, she was trying to be good. Remember, she was embarrassed because she thought if the young men of Phaeacus saw her, saw her coming into town with Odysseus, that they would shame her. Who's this newcomer? And 
So she was trying to be modest and careful of other people. The father seems to be upset. Odysseus says, don't be upset. She's doing what she should do. Hero, do not forget my, for my sake to um, find fault with your blameless daughter. She did what she should have done. Look at Alcinous' answer. Because it, I don't want to read the whole thing, but Odysseus gives him his reason for not asking the king not to be upset. The king says, Stranger, the inward heart in my breast is not of such a kind as to be recklessly angry. Always moderation is better. So that's a principle by which he lives, the mean. Remember Portia. By the way, I, I hope all of you are sort of reckoning back to Portia because remember what, what defined everything she did was the mean. Trying to deal with opposites and, and resolve them when people who held those opposites couldn't resolve their problems. Um, <clears throat> on page 122, Odysseus is welcomed um, and fed and bathed, and then the herald, the, the bard of the community, comes out to tell a story, and he begins to tell the story of the Trojan War, and Odysseus begins to weep. On page 120, um, 122 at the bottom, the herald came near, bringing with him the excellent singer whom the muse had loved greatly and gave him both good and evil. Um, she reft him of his eyes, but she gave him the sweet singing art. Odysseus, or sorry, Homer has been reputed to, be, to have been a blind poet. That's our understanding of him, that he, that he didn't have sight. Demodocus is blind. And it raises this question whether people who are blind can see as well as they do because they're not caught by outward appearances. Somehow they, because they're not trapped there, they're more sensitive to something and they're able to tell stories that, do, that go to a greater depth. But she gave him the sweet singing art. Um, Pontonus set a silver studded chair out for him in the middle of the feasters, popping it against a tall column, and the herald hung the clear lyre, and he began to sing his song. When they had put away their desire for eating and drinking, the muse stirred the singer to sing the famous actions of men on that venture whose fame goes up into the wild heaven, the quarrel between Odysseus and Peleus' the son Achilles, but how these once contended at the gods' generous festival. And it goes on to tell the story. Go down a few lines. Odysseus takes the hood and draws it over his head, drew it over his head and veiled his fine features, shamed for tears running down his face before the fire. And every time the divine singer would pray, pause in his singing, he would take the mantle away from his head, wipe the tears off, and taking up a two-handled goblet, would pour a libation to the gods. But every time he began again, and the greatest of the falcons would urge him to sing, since they joyed in his stories, Odysseus would cover his head again and make lamentation. Now, Kinus has seen what's going on, but Odysseus is being moved to tears, and in kindness to his guest, he takes a break, and he says, let's have games in, or, yeah, they have, well, they have a break, and, um, and they play games, and one of the Phaeacians insults Odysseus, and he manages to beat the Phaeacians in one of the events. And um, then on 135, um, <laughs> actually before, but in that interval, that interlude, 
Demodocus tells another story, and it's the story of um, Ares and um, Aphrodite's lovemaking. And if you remember the story, um, it's on it's on page one twenty and one twenty nine. Um, Hephaestus is married to Aphrodite. She's the most beautiful of the goddesses. He's crippled. Ares and Aphrodite have been making love, so they're unfaithful. And Hephaestus, because he's the god of craft, entwines them in chains while they're sleeping. And when they wake up, they realize they're caught and can't get out of the trap. So it's Hephaestus' way of holding them accountable for a wrong. And all the gods, all the, the, all the Phaeacian audience is delighted by the story. And in the story, um, as the gods come to look at the two gods making love, or the two lovers, <laughs> this is what um, Ergophantes um, says. This is top of 130. Then in turn, courtier Ergophantes answered, Lord who strikes from afar, Apollo, I wish it could only be, I wish it could only be, and there could be thrice this number of endless fastenings. For all you gods could be looking on and all the goddesses, and still I would sleep by the side of Aphrodite the golden. So he's laughing and saying, oh, if I could only be bound with the same chains myself, I'd stay there forever. It's, they're having fun, and it's showing a comic side to the storytelling that's going on. Um, on 135, um, they return to the um, war stories, and this time um, Demodocus sings, um, sings specifically about Odysseus, and he weeps again. And so Alcanus, um, Alcanus the king, stops everybody, page 135, and he asks Odysseus who he is. Okay. In the middle of the page, 135, but let him hold now so that all of us, guest receivers and guests alike, may enjoy ourselves. This is the better way. Once again, it's a moderation. For any man whose wits have hold on to the slightest achievement, his suppliant guest is as good as a brother to him. So do not longer keep hiding now with crafty purpose of the truth of what I ask of you. It's better to speak out. Tell me who you are. Go down a few lines. Tell me your land, your neighborhood, your city, so that our ships straining with their own purpose, can carry you there. For there are no steersmen among the Phaeacians, neither are there any steering oars for them, such as other ships have. These are not ships like other ships. But the ships themselves understand men's thoughts and purposes, and they know all the cities of men and all their fertile fields. And with greater speed they cross the gulf of the sea, huddled under a, a mist and cloud, nor is there ever any fear that they may suffer damage or come to destruction. Yet this I have heard from my father. He said he was given a prophecy that somebody would come and heap destruction on a Phaeacian ship. And he doesn't know what that means, but he's been given a prophecy. A great many of the adventures Odysseus has involves a prophecy telling the people that he would come. The Cyclops, remember, had a prophecy that somebody would come. The Phaeacians here, some others, just hold on to that. It's at this point Odysseus on page 137 identifies himself. I am Odysseus, son of Laertes, known to all men for the study of crafty designs. And now he begins his stories. I want to stop for a second, go, go quickly to the Cyclops. I've got to hurry because we're 
about out of time here. Go to the Cyclops, page 140. A few lines down. The Cyclops who put all their trust in the immortal gods neither plow with their hands nor plant anything. Their attitude is um, they take the gods for granted. So they don't take care of anything. Let the, it's like somebody saying, let God do it. God will take care of it. Rather plow with their hands nor plant anything, but all grows for them without seed planting, without cultivation, wheat, barley, and also the grapevine which yield for them wine of strength. And it is Zeus's rain that waters for them. These people have no institutions, no meetings for counsel. Rather, they make their habitations in caverns hollowed among the peaks of high mountains. Each one is the law for his own wives and children, cares nothing about the others. Now, you know that Odysseus comes into the, um, the cave. He t asked 12 of his men to join him. They come into the cave. Page 144. They're in the cave. Cyclops returns. He puts the stone in front of the opening so the men can't get out. And he asks who they are, and Odysseus says, 144, um, we put ourselves at your knees. If you might give us a guest present or otherwise some gift of grace, for such is the right of strangers. Therefore, respect of gods, O best of men, we are your suppliants. Now remember, what we saw in... Um, in, at Scaria with the Phaeacians, is that Odysseus was fed and bathed, treated as a guest long before they asked who he was. I think we've talked about this before. In the Greek world, you always asked, you always invited a guest in and treated them well before you asked their identity because that guest might be a god. They didn't know because gods could take the form of men. So here they're trusting on that right. And this is what um, they get. Stranger, you're a simple fool or come from afar off when you tell me to avoid the wrath of the gods or fear them. Remember Old Testament, fear of God is the beginning of wisdom. It, by the way, that's filial fear, not craven fear. It's filial. It's the, it's, the, it's the fear of a son. Fear of God is the beginning of wisdom. The Cyclops do not concern themselves over Zeus of the Aegis, nor any of the rest of the blessed gods, since we are far better than they. And for fear of the hate of Zeus, I would not spare you, your companion either, if the fancy took me otherwise, but tell me so I may know. Where did you put your well-made ship, and who are you? Odysseus has said the ship crashed, because suddenly he realizes something's wrong. So he said, we had to swim ashore. He doesn't give the ship away. Um, and... On page 146, the Cyclops immediately in that moment took two men and ate them. And then he took another two men and ate them later. Um, then he goes to sleep and wakes up the morning and comes back and sleeps again, or, or eats again. On page 146, he asks now Odysseus his name. 146, about line 355. Give me still more freely and tell me your name straight away now so I can give you a guest present to make you happy. For the grain-giving land of the Cyclops also yields wine of strength. Odysseus has been giving him wine to get him drunk, you know. And, and um, Odysseus responds, Cyclops, you ask me for my famous name, I will tell you, but you must give me a guest gift as you have promised. Nobody is my name 
My father and mother call me nobody, as do all the others who um, are my companions. So I spoke and he answered, Then I will eat nobody after his friends and the others. Now, he gets drunk. The image of him, next page at the top. Um, he fell on his back and lay there with his neck crooked over on one side, and sleep, who subdues all, came on and captured him, and wine gurgled up from his gullet with gobs of human meat. There was this drunken vomiting. You know what happens. They take that pole that they had sharpened and put into the fire to bring it to a pitch heat and drive it in, bore it into his eye. And you know that he's only got one eye. So he goes blind. He starts screaming and yelling at the bottom of 147. And all of his friends come running and say, Why, Polyphemus, what do you want with all this up upcry? Um, surely none can be killing you by force or treachery. And Polyphemus replies, good friends, nobody is killing me by force or treachery. So they go away, and you know the next day he lets the sheep out. And, and the reason for blinding him instead of killing him is because they knew they couldn't get the stone away themselves. They had to keep him alive. So the next morning when the Cyclops lets the sheep out, all the men hide under the bellies and they get out. They're almost at the ship um, on page... 150, when Odysseus, in f anger, you can call it fury, at the Cyclops because of what he did and what he had to witness, he calls out his name to taunt the Cyclops. And the, his men try to hold him back, but they're not successful. And then the Cyclops says, um, 150, about line 505, On now a prophecy spoken of old has come to completion. There used to be a man here, great and strong, and a prophet, Telemos, this man told me how all this has happened now must someday be accomplished, and how I must lose the sight of my eye at the hands of Odysseus. But always I was on the lookout for a man handsome and tall, with great endowment of strength on him to come here. But now the end of it is that a little man, nittering feeble, has taken away the sight of my eye and making me helpless. You know that um, he comes from um, Poseidon, and when Poseidon hears this, Poseidon is going to take vengeance on Odysseus. Remember, every epic begins with a, a god at odds with the hero. Poseidon is the one. And we know later when he, um, um, when he left um, um, Calypso's Island, Poseidon swamped the rack and he had to come home. And the Phaeacians now say they will give him safe convoy home. Okay? Now, I want to stop here and, and ask a couple of questions because we're getting close to time. Um, Odysseus will complete the stories here in Phaeaca, and I, I, we'll come back to them next week. When he's done, Alcinous will give him conveyance home. Phaeaca is a place of beauty and art. Architecture was made by the gods. It's vast. It's like mansions, if you've ever been. I mean, there are areas here that stun me. They're large homes that are mansion-like and beautiful, wealthy. and um, There's art and dancing and courtesy. Although, Nasika says, be careful, they can be insolent. Um, and one man actually insults Odysseus. Alkino says, no ships ever come to their place. They don't experience wars. They don't know how to use bows. They never use them. They're full of peace. So you've got the Cyclops in one extreme and um, Scaria, the Falcon Island, at the other. Um, after Odysseus tells the Falcons' stories, you know that Alcinous loads a ship up full of treasure. So he's going to go home wealthy. 
But here's the description. Remember, the, 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 the one phrase that most defines them is that descriptions of ships going over the sea without fear from the gods and um, following the thoughts of men. It's as if they don't need oars. Okay? They're, they're so advanced. When the Phaeacians take off, they convey Odysseus across the sea just before he gets to Ithaca. Poseidon turns the ship into a mountain. And Alcinous' response was, I was given a prophecy a long time ago that something like that would happen. So it's the fulfillment of another prophecy. It's as if everywhere he goes, he makes people aware of a fault that brings them back to a norm. That there's something they're missing. Now I'm going to Michael's um, description of the Phaeacians earlier, if you can all stay with us. So, um, the, both of these communities, remember, were side by side at one point. The Cyclops used to attack the Phaeacians, so they finally moved away, and now they're far apart. Um, and I, this is probably a little bit premature. You know that Odysseus is going to go home, so we, we, we've got to ask the question again when we get there, but let me ask it now. Where do we find the Cyclops today, and where do we find um, the Phaeacians, and what do we understand about the Phaeacians from what Poseidon does? That just when Odysseus arrives home, Poseidon turns that ship into a mountain. What do we learn about both of those communities? Let's take the Cyclops first. Where, where do we find the Cyclops? So if, if all these adventures are pointing to archetypes, where do we find the Cyclops today? Let's take that and then get to the Phaeacians. Connie, come on, jump in here. Where do we find the Cyclops today? I'm trying that on. Well, I mean, I would, I would say like North Korea or China or Russia. Is that what you're talking about? Well, I, yes. I mean, right away, yes. So for for sure. Can we bring it closer? Yes. No. You mean like in the United States? Yeah. Let's let's find it close. When I ask questions like this, I'm, I'm, you're, I, mean, I think you're right on, absolutely right on. Are there things that we can point to in the U.S. that we learn something about from seeing the Cyclops? Where do we find the Cyclops here? Or may, maybe somebody will want to say they're not here. They're in, you know, they're in China or, or in um, what's that? You know, some of the in Syria and. Cambodia and you know some of those those inhuman regimes. Um, yes, for sure. Our anarchy today. Sorry. Our anarchy today. Well, specify it. Can we specify it? The anarchy that's going on by the demonic element in our government. I think it's the press. 
to wait. Here, Doc, just can you come over? Can you hear Doc? She just jumped in here. I think it's the. Hi, everybody. I think. Here, come in, Doc. I think it's the. I'm right here. Can you? Yeah. I think it's the. Um, the press on both sides that is single, single vision. They can't see anything but how awful Trump is or anything but how marvelous he is. They can't, they can't allow for another opinion. It's like they only have tunnel vision. And, I guess well, Hollywood would be being a good example too. Then, in that respect, who say again, Connie? Hollywood. Hollywood. Yes. <laughs> Wait, I want to be careful here before we get. Yes, yes, yes to both of you because I um, because one of the qualities of the Cyclops clearly is their literal mindedness, right? They're one dimensional, so they're an image. I, I want to be clear because I want to be really careful because I thought, what's his name? Hope Hawk the the. The leader of that country that you were, I thought, Connie, referring to, you know, the, huh? Popot. Just, I mean, some of the really brutal leaders are, are to me, so visibly cyclopean. But I want to be careful of the, the press and Hollywood. I happen, to, I happen to share the same belief, but I want to be careful about politics right now. It seems to me that the Cyclops are an image of anybody who's literal-minded, one-dimensional in their thoughts. They cannot see more. That's what Odysseus is showing when he says, my name is nobody. The guy, the Cyclops, Polyphemus, has no clue when he says, nobody's killing me by force of treachery, that he's taking away his own protection. He doesn't understand. He's, so, he's on a literal level. But the thing I don't want to lose here is he's bru openly brutal. So, so in some ways it seems to me he's that literal mindedness that I think is most associated with men and male strength. So even if there's an element of that buried in Hollywood, now you think about all the men who, you know, the movies where Sylvester Stallone is killing a million men and, and men in the audience fall all over themselves because of that power, you know, that it, 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 you, you can say it's Hollywood. I want to be careful because it may be hidden there, and I, and I also think it's hidden in the press. But I don't want to lose that association with force because the Cyclops is an image of brute force and literal mindedness put together. And it seems to me, if you look at a lot of the rioters that are going on today, particularly men, but more and more women, if you watch those men act, it's for me, it's hard to see them without seeing the Cyclops. They're brutal, they have no scruples about killing. Um, so the Cyclops is an image, and go, I'm, I'm really glad I brought this up tonight because I don't think I've thought about it before. Part of the beauty of what Homer's doing is showing that those two cities grew up side by side. Okay, we science has no evidence, none, that things develop along evolutionary models. That's a theory that they assume. What Homer's showing us back then, and you can go back to Egypt or Babylon or wherever you want to go, but let's stay with Homer. What Homer shows us is that they're they're together. If you think about the fall biblically from Adam and Eve losing the garden to what happens afterwards, you see that these two qualities, good and bad, grow up next to each other. Enoch founds the first city, and there's good and evil. It's the Terns in Christ's parable. So I don't want to lose that. Um, and so it seems to me he, he, Odysseus is learning 
to deal with once again brute force, which is what Achilles and both of them had to do. And to go back to this idea that I introduced the class with, I just want everybody to hold on to it. Remember, one of the arguments that I made is that one of the great things that Homer did that anticipates Christ is that he gives us this sense of a logos at work in the world. A logos. You remember, a logos in the Greek meant a word, reason, rationality, that there's an intelligibility to everything. Everything in nature has meaning. Everything. Everything speaks. It has meaning. And one of the things we're watching in the Iliad is that the workings of this logos, Athena in her wisdom, that's inherent in man, at least as the pre-Christian world saw it. The modern world, I think, has lost it. But what we're getting here is a sense that there's this logos putting a curb on male force in the Iliad. And here, too, this reason, the, the, the man's power of rationality, is at work. In this instance, Odysseus has to put himself away to say he's nobody to make an opening for this work. But he has to be capable of using physical force to answer this, or there's no way they'll get out of the cave. So it's, it's, it's interesting to watch Odysseus as a man of prudence calling on his, this wisdom, or you know, and to see in the larger picture this logos. Remember when I read that passage from Scripture today, the, the passage from the weekend about God's power, his justice, that there is this logos at work in the world. God's word, his presence. The, mod the scientific world, the fundamentalist world, the Islamic fundamentalists, all deny it. It's gone. It was there, and in some sense it's anticipating Christ and what, what will happen when Christ leaves and the paraclete, the paraclete comes to keep that word alive. Quickly, because we're, we're out of time. The, the Phaeacians, what do we know about them? Where, where can we find them? What's their fault? In so many ways they seem ideal. What's wrong with them? They're punished when they take Odysseus home. Mike, you were there. Any thoughts on that? What's wrong with the Phaeacians? They're they're living in an ivory castle of sorts. I mean, they're they're cut off from the world. They, but I'm, I'm puzzled with this all through the Iliad and through most of the Odyssey. The concept of hospitality is so important, but that's. That struck me. Maybe that, maybe I made too much of it than than it really was. But they didn't seem the common people didn't seem like very, they were very hospitable. There's an insolence to yeah yeah. yeah there's some insolence to it. it, but, it uh, happens a couple of times where people are really rude. But. Why do they? What? Why do they? Why is that? Why does Poseidon? put that mountain on them to punish them at the end. What's the fault, the great fault of the Phaeacians? And where are they? Connie, where would you put them? Phaeacians. This beauty, this art, this cultivation, these manners. Here in America, anybody. And 
trouble taking taking my mic off. Um, I don't know the church, maybe. The church. Don't no. forget. Don't forget, Jonah. Jonah. Wait. Don't forget. It's just as a. I'm. This is funny. Don't forget in our church that we honor Saint Francis for his kindness and I don't know if passivity is the right word, but for his gentleness. Yeah. And we also honor Saint Joan as a warrior. That's right. <laughs> That's true. <laughs> I'm trying. I'm trying to protect our church right now because I. I think. Our church carries the Odyssey in it, and all of them. I mean, you, you may be outraged at that, but I think they both carry it. But I mean, the church carries both of those. What's wrong with the Fiacans? Anybody want to jump in? It's, it seems to me like they're being punished for their, for like the wealthy are. Uh, the wealthy who give to someone else. Who's online, right? Who said that? Me, Kathy Deaton. Kathy. God, yeah, don't, I don't have a but good. Yeah, can you locate it? Can you give it an area? Or, or wait, wait. Let me put it differently. Why would that be true of the wealthy? Well, it just seems to me like those being punished are the ones who give, who give anonymously, and the others don't want, don't, don't approve it, don't like it. Well, is that a fault of the wealthy or the... No, no, it's not their fault. It's, they're the ones being punished, I think. Oh, 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 I see, yeah. Anybody else? What's wrong with a ship going over the sea without fear? What's wrong with that in Homer's world? Remember, I, I, that, that phrase, that description, must be repeated at least ten times in the Fiacan episode, over and over again. The ships go across sea without fear, as if they're following the thoughts of men, as if they don't need oars, and they have no fear. And, and, remember, and, and remember, the Scaria is a place where ships don't come to them, they know nothing of war, they know nothing of the bow, how about a comparison to academia? <laughs> the academia, they, they, they don't really get into the reality of it. It's all just, it just, you know, thoughts and happens. Yep. yep. And it, you know, they, they really don't, um, I mean, everything seems to be perfect because it's not reality. Yeah. And they're in their heads. Yes. Yeah. Here, let me, yeah, I, I think you're right. Is that Kathy again? No, this is Melody. Oh, Melody, sorry, God. I keep. That's okay. No, I think you're right. I don't have an image. Some, so many of the images of you guys are gone. Um, here, the, the, the Greek word that applies to this was the word called techne, technology, from which we get technology. The Phaeacans are, are a technologically advanced world. It's almost like a prefiguration of a computer world. Because computers work on the thoughts of men. As if you didn't need to buy. Well, here, here's a perfect example. We're all present together with no bodies. Yeah? I mean, this, is, this gets as close to it as I've been laughing. I would put Scaria, which is where we are, it scares me. I'm not kidding. I mean, this, this, I'm being really honest. Right now. I'd put Scaria in suburbia. 
It's the world in which you were moved from the city, and I, and I think academic types would be most at home there, because you're in a world of thought. What is the one thing that marks the Phaeacians from the rest of the world and sets that world apart from Odysseus? Odysseus is called long-suffering Odysseus. If there's anything the Phaeacians need, it's suffering to strengthen them. They don't know how to deal with problems. They don't deal with war. Their whole world is an escape from it. Yeah? It's an idealized world. I thought the I thought um, Melody, you're you're going to uh, academics is really good. Um, why are they punished at the end by Poseidon? In the Homeric world, where are the gods? They're in nature. They're at work in nature, right? They're everywhere. Poseidon's the god of the sea. You know, Apollo, the heavens, the sun, and right? If you ever reach a point where you think you've mastered nature, what's the problem? With te particularly with technology. You guys seen Jurassic Park? You know, in the movie where these scientists think they've mastered nature and can... I mean, I, I know there are lots of people who offer movies like that where people play with nature or reach a point where they think they can control it. We can use it for our own purposes and and then we end up very often bringing harm to ourselves. So it seems to me if we look at these two worlds, the Cyclops and the Phaeacians, we've got an image of literal-minded, I think male power force. But it's really important to remember that even though Odysseus has to efface himself, he also has to step forward and kill the Cyclops because if he doesn't, they don't get out of the cave. The Cyclops will kill him. There are people in the world who are going to kill people. There, there are violent people who do that. To not answer them is just to, in some sense, be complicit. I mean, they, the killing will go on. The Phaeacians are at the other extreme. They're, they're a culture that doesn't know suffering. They don't learn from it. They're not strengthened by it. They don't know how to deal with it. When they get, when they get Odysseus home, they, they pride themselves on um, mastering nature, not being afraid of the gods. So they're like a reverse mirror image of the Cyclops, because remember, the Cyclops have no fear of the gods. Neither do the Phaeacians. And the Phaeacians are in a self-sufficient city. They can act like gods. Um, so at the end, it's appropriate for Poseidon to put a mountain on them because it's a way of showing them their hubris. That if a man ever reaches a point where he thinks he can master nature, he's in trouble. Dante's image will be like this. Picture God at the top, and nature and art. God's art is nature. He created it. So he's present at work everywhere. Dante wants to copy nature. Whenever men reach a point where they think they can master nature, in some ways they're denying God. So in so many ways the Odyssey is looking forward to... It's so compatible with what's gonna what's gonna happen when Christ comes. Okay. So those are the two, these are all the paradigms. We've looked at um, uh, um, Ithaca, Pylos, Sparta, and um, Scaria, the Phaeacians, and the Cyclops. 
um, it gives us a sense of the scope and the range of regimes and the disorders that man's capable of and what man has got to deal with if he's going to get home he's going to have a family okay so i'm i'm really sorry i've been good until the last 10 minutes and then i went over time again got back back to my bad ways again um i would ask for questions except i'm already late if um unless anybody has a if anybody has a pressing question we'll take a minute but otherwise i'm gonna okay good do you have a question yes uh you mentioned about the uh poseidon yes mountain right to me it's like the united states enjoying the good economy and all that all of a sudden mountain is thrown in front of us which is covid 19. <laughs> <laughs> I, I'm so glad for that, only in this sense, because I, I, I genuinely enjoy it. Because in lots of ways, I think America is like the... I'm, I'm going to give myself away here. I, this is getting personal, and maybe I shouldn't do this. I think in lots of ways, America, in its present character, has, and, it had, and it's been coming here for some time, has been more and more of a utopian world. Absolutely yeah. utopian. Yes. And the mountain, I mean, in, the, in your image of the mountain, to me is so appropriate. I couldn't agree more that America has, if I can put it this way, America has to be humbled a little bit. You know, mm -hmm. we've, we've become too powerful, too vain, yes. too powerful, too sure of ourselves, too wealthy, too utopian, too otherworldly. Remember Odysseus is called long-suffering Odysseus. The whole nature of the modern utopian world is to escape suffering, to make our world perfect so we don't have to suffer, there will be no problems. So I, com I completely agree. I, I love your analogy. Um, any more before we go? You guys stay safe. Um, please keep Suzanne and me in your prayers and be grateful if you would include Mike. Mike is... Um, on a threshold moment, if I can just put it that way. Um, good things are happening to him, and I, I think he would enjoy our blessings. I don't want to get personal, because, um, but keep Mike in your prayers. We wouldn't be doing this <laughs> if it weren't for him. So anyway, you all stay safe, and, um, and I'll send you that stuff the day before or the morning of, so check it out and, um, and finish the Odyssey. We'll, we'll probably take two more weeks, maybe two, maybe three, but we'll pick up the rest of the wanderings and then we'll get home next, we'll for sure get home next week and look at the homecoming. So maybe two weeks and then we'll start the Indian. And if you see any of the other church members, grab them, get them back into this class. I don't know where everybody is, but anyway, it's good to see you all. Maria, um, it was good to have you. I hope we see you again and the rest of you. You all have a good week, okay? Bye, you guys. Bye. Thank you. Bye. You're welcome. Thank you. Thank you. Is there any way to um, hold on to the names of the people who clicked in? Yeah. Well, so I've got the names stuck on them, but I don't. I asked everybody to send you an email. I'm not sure that they'll remember. Well, you can see on the Teams the record of who joined. Oh. With the email? No, no, just in the Teams app. I I know, but with the emails, with the names. 
I think I've seen the names. I didn't see the emails. Yeah, I don't. I don't know if it shows. The That's email. all right. I can. I can get the emails if I can get the names. I'm sorry if you're. This is really late for you. That's okay. That's okay. I gotta go home, make a phone call. But um, I've been thinking about how to fix this big tangled mess now. About sending out the invite or what? Yeah, I think we just need to go back to the original invite and change the one for the new one back to the name for the original one. I don't know how to do that. The mic does. Why wouldn't we I just send out a? Well, go ahead. I mean, you go ahead. You you know this stuff. I don't. Because some new people, well, I mean, some new people did it. I think it would be more Here, here's the problem. confusing to, to put a, th a third. I don't know. what. Here's, here's my concern. Yeah. I, I mean, I can straighten this out if you tell me how. Ellie, who's the secretary at yeah. Seton, has been sending me a, a, lots of um, people who come to her expressing, I'm not seeing them. I mean, I'm, yeah. but she's sending emails because people come and she's supposed to give them that invite page. Yeah. And I don't know if that's scrambling, but whatever we need to do, we need to that's get rid of the saying, mess. That's why he's saying going back to the the first link, because it'll be the link that Ellie's giving out. I don't know how we do that. I mean, because now they've got two. I could also put on your website a link to join the team's meeting. That might be even easier. You could just give to Ellie, say, go to literaturesprophecy.com and we could put a link right on the homepage. Okay, listen, I'm fine with whatever you suggest. I mean, I, I wasn't even aware of this until tonight. We, yeah. the st we still got the problem. Different people have different invite yeah. things. so. You can do that, and and I and what I, what I can do, Mike, is do that and send out a third email, and in in that email say, get rid of the first two because we've created confusion. This will be, yeah. Otherwise, I don't know what to do because <clears throat> we've got to straighten out a confusion. However, we do it, yeah. go, yeah, go yeah, back yeah. or go forward, or go forward to a third. I'm sorry you're having to do this. That's okay. That's okay. Yeah, let me, let me, let me. You want to think on it? Let me think on it. I'm going to go back and do some testing. There's nothing to do right now. We don't have to do anything right now. I'm going to. True, true. So it's, there's no. I, I just think as long as we get it straightened out before, you know, the weekend. For sure. I would like to get it straightened out as soon as, I don't want to rush. Right. And right, I don't want to right. press at the other end. I don't right. want to, you know, I don't right, want to come right, to right, Saturday. Right. Because Absolutely. I want to, I want to send. I'm going to send out an email thanking everybody and tell everybody anyway. But if I can get it out before, it'll just yeah, it'll settle their minds before the weekend. Yeah. So, no hurry, none. We don't need to do it now. I'm glad to put it on the web. That's not going to cut into my email, mm. right? I'm not going to. Yeah, you know, you know, doctor. I think that's a concern for me, Mike. I just, I don't I just, know this stuff well just, enough. Okay, so wait, fortunately, wait. I want some wine. Would you? Oh like, yeah. Would you like some wine? Ah, uh, well, I do have to get going, unfortunately. Megan's going to be 
calling in just a bit here, so I need to. I, I, need I just want to get a simple answer. Yeah, sure. Would you like to sit or not? I'm um, so I'm going to think about this. I have, I have a couple ideas of tossing around on how we can best fix this going forward. And I'm going to test a few things out tonight. Um, and I'll get back to you. I think what we're going to do going forward is just have one unified for that everyone's going to join. For um, both groups? For both groups, exactly. So it's the same link for everyone. It's just you either Different join times? one day and four. Okay, I don't know. I mean, you know this stuff, I don't. Anyway, I just, I just, it's, it's so interesting to be reading that because I, 
read it 25 years ago, forgotten at all. And read Homer and see Homer putting those two things absolutely next together. Evolutionists, yeah. thinking people, they, they, I mean, they won't see that at all. They're so convinced, and they have no evidence. They're so convinced that they're, we, we're primitive and barbaric. Yeah, and so oh, absolutely. Because if you did, how do you explain the co-presence of barbarism? I mean, that's why I wanted to get you know the stuff that's going on in these cities with violence and um, explain that as revolutionary. Yeah. Okay, you're gonna you're gonna let us know. Yes. You said they're gonna they're probably gonna come to mass with us. Oh good. Yeah. Good. I, mean, I think that would be very possible. Well, whatever. I mean if you do or not, it, it'd yeah. be just nice to have an evening with you. Um let this be a good good night, Lord. Um thank you for um our life from you and in you, with you, and your presence through this day. God, um, I can't imagine, I mean, there's no way Suzanne and I would be here with this group without Mike. Um, um, we're making special prayers for him that his ego not get too big. Um, um, what a great grace to have this help. Um, there's no way Suzanne and I can get to it. For your presence through this day, for our work, um, strengthen us in our efforts to do your will, to give ourselves to what you're asking. And ask a special blessing on the people involved in these groups. Help them to live what they're writing. And help it change their lives and bring them closer to you. And to realize that you're far more present than at work than most of us think. We're grateful for our time together tonight, and I'm especially grateful um, tonight for his help. Uh, be with Megan, um, watch over the two of them, um, continue to strengthen them in your blessings. They're so obviously there. Um, help us to be with you through the evening, keep your spirit with us um, through the evening and do our best tonight. Thank you for this day. Thank you. And just keep that camera. Um, oh, I did. Do, is there anything I need to know about that? No. no you no. set up. I wasn't even involved. Oh, I just plug it in. That's all it is. It's, so it's, it's there. that easy. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Thank you. Thank you so much. You're so welcome. Gosh. All right. Use it all up, and I'll give you some more. I can't wait. Okay, make some steak. <laughs> 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 all right. Well. I, I guess we'll be in touch. Let me know when you, whatever you decide, because I'll write a letter. I'm gonna put a, I'm gonna put a link right on the homepage of your website. Okay. Right to the that way, and that way in the future, if anyone calls you or emails you about, hey, I can't get in, just Go say literaturesprophecy.com. Click the big button. Okay. It makes it easy, you know. Okay. You know this is a worry, and we, I interrupted you. Yeah. It's, it's not gonna make for difficulties with my email. No. 
the link on the website is totally independent of your email. Because I don't want anybody. I mean, I, I'm overwhelmed with these numbers, which is why I want to get the groups down. Sorry, is that, is that still connected? Oh, no, it's not connected. No. Oops, here, I didn't even. Did we? Oh. oh, do we need to cut the. God, I just. I do this every week. <laughs>